Good evening, and welcome to Nighty Night with Rabia Chaudhry. Bedtime stories to keep you awake. I'm DJ Lou Bell, the show's producer. Tonight's episode is about a boy whose drive to win is so intense, it's deadly. Please enjoy Down by the River. All right. Are you listening closely? Don't say anything. Just nod. I'm going to start and you're going to listen and there will be no interruptions, no pauses, no questions. But you knew that, right? By now you'd have to. If it took me telling you not to interrupt your superiors, then you should just walk out of here and jump in front of a bus. Good. I knew you knew. You're here because you pay attention. And if you're paying attention, you're alive. And if you're not, you're dead weight. You get it. Thanks again for coming in today, by the way. I knew you would if you had the right stuff. I have a good eye for this by now. You have to if you want to stay on top. These perfect pearls of wisdom I bestow onto you because I think you have what it takes. I'm sharing with you important and exclusive information so that you can further model yourself on my perfect figure and leave the last worm-like vestiges of your pathetic selves in that trash pile where they belong. So I'm going to tell you a story, and you're going to listen closely, because there'll be a test. When I was 15, I moved to a small town in Indiana, one of those anonymous nowheres with a name like Greenville or Bristol Heights or Fairfield, you know, that idyllic little American town. My dad owned retail liquidation stores, so we had to constantly relocate to another one of these identical nowheres just when the town was going to shit. I learned a lot about the world from my dad. He had a real sound idea of the way things worked. He could see that buzzards always eat. If you find something dying, you can make it a meal. Circle the stragglers and make your move when they're down. Sniff out a failing business and strip it for parts before the bugs and the rot set in. And you gotta be there faster and meaner than any other buzzard who might want a piece of your meal. My dad was a true believer, old school. He believed with all his heart and soul that he lived on God's gift to earth, a place where anyone can come out on top if they have the will and the drive to do it. He was like if Tony Robbins and Andrew Carnegie had a baby. And the biggest lesson and legacy that he left for me was to dream big and envision success. Show me a man of average ability but extraordinary desire and I'll show you a winner every time. That's what Carnegie said. You got that, son? You gotta want more and want that more than anybody else. That's the ticket to success. Ah, my dear old dad. So, you know, in every new school that I found myself in, I did everything I could to be number one. Best grades, top athlete, most eligible bachelor, class president and presidential education awards and all of that happy horse shit. In seventh grade at some little backwater near Dayton, my photo was on every page of the yearbook, even the pages for the other grades. I made sure of it. But then after a lot of moving, my dad finally made a promise that we'd settle down for a bit. He told me there'd be no more changes until I graduated from high school. And to me, that meant I had three years to claw my way to the top of my new class and make an Ivy League level name for myself. But in Indiana, I had my work cut out for me. 
by sophomore year, especially in small towns like that, the social hierarchy has already been decided. When I stepped inside those dimly lit hallways for the first time, I could see the way the strings were tied. I remember seeing two girls in stained oversized sweaters and thinning jeans just seize up when a thin blonde in Vegas escort level makeup just slid past them. It's like she pulled the air from their lungs. You could just feel the jealousy seeping out of them. Then there were these twin sisters, doe-eyed and silky-haired. They had smooth skin that was like untouched by worry. And they held the reins of everybody in their orbit. The whole thing was like this pyramid of puppets holding the strings of the puppets below. And I just followed that social chain mapping out the network of strings until I got to the top. And at the top was Matthew Ruggle head string puller in the puppet show. It was obvious from the moment I saw him, just walking slowly and casually into homeroom, 10 minutes late but completely unconcerned. Matt walked with that posture that you only see in natural leaders. You know, the classic alpha male, his head up, chest forward, breathing easy and a smile so natural, it was like it was permanent. He waved to the class like a president stepping off of Air Force One, and his adoring public, including the instructor, returned the gesture. And then Matt just casually took a seat in the back. Our homeroom teacher, Mr. Kapowski, or some similar Pollock gibberish, was this bald and bloated nothing, you know, a sycophant of the lowest order. When he stood up to start the school day, I watched him give Matt a look of gratitude like nothing could start without him being there. And then Kropowski called me up to the front of the class to welcome me to the school. Now look, by then, I'd gone through the ritual of introducing myself to maybe a dozen previous schools, and I had the normal routine memorized. I came ready with my two truths and a lie story, which were actually three lies, my ten fun facts, which were actually all false, a completely fabricated how I spent my summer story, and a fantasy for dinner party. I told him I'd want dinner with Gandhi, Jesus, Martin Luther King, and Harry Truman, but the truth is Truman was the only one that I'd actually grab dinner with, but only so I could ask him what it felt like to give the order to vaporize so many people. Here's a good tip, by the way, for any first impressions you might make. Say as little as possible. Just give them a few small details, even or especially if they're bullshit, and everyone will start filling in the blanks and projecting their own warped fantasies onto you. No need to do the work for them. So when I got up to the front, I gave my name and the places I lived, giving myself this air of cosmopolitan mystery in the middle of these yokels. I watched the crowd for any useful reactions and paid special attention to Matt. And when I said I'd spent half a year in San Diego, a total lie, I saw his eyes snap into focus. Ah, a Midwest boy who's California dreaming. I could work with that. For the rest of the day, I kept my eye on Matt and his inner circle. I learned that they were all on the football team. They loved classic rock and southern hip-hop, and they'd known each other since they were nine years old. They came across like they were hickish and dim, but Matt, at least, was a clear patrician. Photos, statues, and plaques in the school's trophy hall all had the name Matthew Ruggle sketched in prominently. The boy was obviously naturally gifted. He had all the right combinations of A's and T's and C's and G's to put together a superior human being. Smart, handsome, athletic, and personable. So, you know, there was no way that my own less-than-ideal genetics could compete on a level field. 
So right there, as I looked at his name on all those trophies and plaques in that hall of brass and bronzed plastic, I made my decision. Matthew Ruggle had to die. Now I know you're thinking, whoa, you just jumped straight to killing him? Well, yes and no. I did backtrack and try to think of some less risky solutions later at home. I thought maybe I could cripple him somehow or publicly embarrass him or or even just plant a gun and a manifesto in his locker. But as I was thinking through every scenario, a Tony Robbins quote came to my mind from one of the heaps of books that my dad piled high in my bedroom. Robbins said, for changes to be of any true value, they've got to be lasting and consistent. And in this case, lasting change meant Matt had to die. For the next few weeks, I kept a low profile and tried to gather all the information I could. Matt had gotten an oversized pickup truck for his 16th birthday a couple of years earlier. His dad was an insurance agent and his mom was a nurse. He had an older sister, supposedly very attractive, who had just left last year for State University. He played running back and he was a crucial part of bringing the varsity team to the state championship from the time he was a freshman. And along with a couple of his closest friends, Matt signed up for the school's new winter ski club. And so did I. I did everything I could to infiltrate Matt's inner circle. I joined the football team, becoming the third string replacement for Matt. I dug through my dad's latest retail acquisitions to find a more appropriate wardrobe of camouflage and polo shirts. I begged him for a pickup truck for my upcoming birthday, and he relented after I agreed to work three shifts a week at his combination warehouse and retail space. I learned all the words to the Whisper Song and Bohemian Rhapsody. A couple of months into the school year, I had positioned myself to become one of his closest friends, putting myself in Matt's orbit, but I wasn't quite there yet. Our first major one-on-one happened after football practice in early October. In the damp and sour concrete halls of the locker room, two guys were teasing Matt about some fruity after-school appointment he had. Matt took it with a grain of salt. He was pretty gracious about it, and he told them that when it came time for college applications and scholarships, it was going to be worth it. I was intrigued, and I saw an opportunity to connect. What was that about? I asked Matt. He told me that twice a month he volunteered at the Methodist church, packing bags of food for the needy. He said that it looked great on applications, but that in all honesty, he really enjoyed helping others. (laughs) I suppressed my urge to laugh and gag at the same time, but then I asked him if I could tag along that night. I met him at the church that evening, and I made nice with all the goody two-shoes idiots there that he introduced me to. Posers, all of them. Anyway, we got assigned to sandwich duty, and they gave us these huge tubs of cheap peanut butter and jelly and sacks of crappy white bread. I groaned on the inside. This was going to take forever. And for what? To make PB and J's for the worthless. But I knew how to turn it into a good time. Want to race? I asked Matt. He laughed and responded, Ha! I'm always down to race for what's good. By the end of the night, I had made 218 sandwiches, intentionally short of Matt's 221. The whole time, we chatted about church and family and giving back to the community, all that shit that he was into. And after that, he was hooked. I started getting invites to his family dinners, tailgates, and all the keggers that Matt graced with his presence. Matt's two closest friends, Derek and Hunter, got a little salty at first, but I made sure to win them over with bottles of whatever liquor I thought my dad wouldn't miss. They were easy enough to befriend, simple boys with simple desires. It was the end of November when we took our first ski trip, 
a two-night stay in some cheap Michigan lodge, and I decided this was the best opportunity to get him. It was time to kill Matt Ruggle. Kropowski was the club sponsor and chaperone, and he let us pick roommates, and I wormed my way into being Matt's. Derek and Hunter didn't mind, especially after I told them that I was smuggling in a handle of 101 for all of us to enjoy together. It took five hours for the bus to make the monotonous trip, and I spent the time wisely planting seeds. Hey, you guys are all up for the big slope, right? I looked it up, and this place has a double black diamond. I bet I can make it to the bottom before you goons, I said, throwing down the gauntlet. Derek and Hunter didn't take the bait. Derek said it was his first time skiing, and he just wanted to practice on the bunnies. Hunter agreed. He had come to mostly get away from his new stepdad and his 2 p.m. tequila habit. How about you, Matt? You got a pair of testicles in your boxers, right? Or are you planning on sipping hot cocoa with the ladies here all weekend? I egged Matt on. But Matt, he just leaned his head to the side, looked out the window at the flat, muddy landscape we were trudging through. Uh Uh-oh, I think I smell chicken shit. Macho man Matt Ruggle is scared of a little hill. Matt just flashed me a little smile and went back to staring out the window. And then I remembered this dinner that I had with Matt's family a few weeks earlier. His dad, who was just teasing him, told me that Matt's older sister used to call him Matty Fatty Pee Pants and it would drive him crazy. Now that kind of research, my friends, is indispensable. So I leaned in close and I whispered in his ear, Matty Fatty Pee Pants loves to do the pee-pee dance. Oh my God, his reaction was immediate. His head whipped around and he just glared at me. Then he told me to eat shit and that he'd beat me to the bottom of any hill any time. I could tell he was legit pissed, which meant my plan was working. We rode the rest of the way in complete silence. Matt's temper started to mellow by the time we got to the ski lodge and I broke the silence by offering him his choice of beds. Now that we were out of earshot from Derek and Hunter, I gave him a light apology for teasing him and Matt accepted and we were pretty much okay after that. And then once Kropowski went to bed, we invited Derek and Hunter over and started our little party. I poured rounds for the others all night, though I didn't drink much myself. My only objective that night was getting Matt absolutely shit-faced before our race down the resort's steepest hill the next morning. I had done some research in the weeks leading up to the trip, and I found out that 12 people had died going down that hill ever since the resort had opened. I didn't think it would take too much effort to make Matt the 13th. The next morning, Matt could hardly get out of bed. I made sure his sleep was terrible, waking him up every few hours accidentally during the night, and the half liter of whiskey in his belly was clearly crushing his skull and clawing at his eyes as I had hoped. I had seen my dad try to make fried eggs while hungover on a Sunday morning enough times to know that Matt was not going to be able to make it down that mountain. But I goaded him out of bed called him every synonym for wuss I could think of until he forced himself upright. I had to help him put on his pants and carry his skis, and I felt an excitement like Christmas Eve creeping over me. Matt was literally slumped over on the ski lift up to the mountain. He even puked once, just dangling right over the side, 50 feet above the ground. I thought maybe he would do me a favor and fall right over, but he did manage to make it to the top of the treacherous slope. We hopped off the ski lift, and I steadied him. We doing this, I asked him. Matt only groaned in response, but then he gestured for help with the skis, which is exactly what I was expecting. On his right foot, I snapped his boot into place, aligned the clips, and I checked to make sure it was properly tight. 
but on the left, I held the heel buckle back just a hair, snapped his toe into place with the same clack of confirmation, only without the actual security. Then I helped Matt to his feet and smiled, happily thinking that I'd never see him again. All right, buddy, I said, let's do this. On the count of three, Matt slumped down, got into a downhill stance. One, two, three. We both shoved off with our poles, rocketing down the slope. To pull this off, I knew I needed to look like I was really racing. And that was the hardest part of the whole situation because I was actually a pretty weak skier. I had only done it a few times before, but I was trying to make it look like I was a total threat on the slopes. My knees and ankles felt like they were going to snap. Still, I sucked up the pain and tension, stayed upright until I heard what I was hoping for. A loud smack on a tree, the thud of a rolling body, and a blood-curdling scream. I did my best to slow down and ended up tumbling a short way down the hill myself. And just as I had hoped, Matt's ski had flown off at some point, and he had left a crooked trail of desperate attempts to stop. I followed the trail to find him lying in a heap in a small patch of pines. I can't lie, I was pumped, full of adrenaline, I was so excited. I wasn't sure if he was still alive though. I saw him crumbled up in a heap, his left arm hanging at all the wrong angles and his right leg was clearly broken, snapped in half, twisted in the middle of the femur. He wasn't moving, but I got close and I asked, Matt, are you okay? Hey man, say something. Then I mentally high-fived myself when I didn't hear a sound for a few seconds. Unfortunately, it was premature. After a couple of minutes, I heard him groan. Shit, I thought. He was badly injured but alive. I looked around thinking maybe I could just finish him off before anyone found us. It wouldn't be hard to suffocate him, but that might show up in an autopsy. A ski slope death would have to be from blunt force trauma. I looked around for a fallen branch or rock anything heavy enough to cave in Matt's skull and make it look natural, but it was already too late. I heard him before I saw him, that fat, fumbling idiot bounding towards us. Oh my God, what happened? It was Krapowski. I choked back. Mr. K, thank God, Matt's hurt. He needs help. Now see, my eyes were already teary from the cold, so it was a pretty convincing performance if I do say so myself. Kropowski, the poor sucker. He tried to comfort me and told me everything would be okay. And of course, soon enough, a helicopter from a nearby hospital was airlifting Matt off the mountain. Kropowski decided to bring the whole club home after the accident. I packed my things along with Matt's. Man, was I pissed off. My plan had failed. But as I'd been taught, I didn't give up. Matt spent the next two weeks in the hospital in Michigan, and I spent them pissed off that now Matt would return to school all helpless and pitiful, a wounded hero, and I'd be seen as the faithful servant, the lapdog who ran for help when his master was in peril. I was so angry, my skin felt like it was going to burn off. The stress must have taken its toll on me because my dad could feel something was off. He used to take me on these long Sunday drives out to one of his warehouses, He'd put on an inspirational or secret to success type book on tape and we would wind our way through the cornfields or gravel pits or black marshes to the remote and cheap land that he built on, bonding in silence, listening until we arrived. Sometimes dad would give me a little sermon on whatever virtue he was thinking about or what we were listening to at the time, but the conversation would never dip into our personal or interior lives, you know, our feelings. 
but this time he must have felt like it was time to cross that boundary. He cut off Joel Olstein mid-sentence and then turned to me and said, Hey buddy, you alright? You look like you're in a jam. I told him it was nothing, but my dad was a lot more perceptive than I gave him credit for. He put a hand on my shoulder, which I normally would never allow, but on that day, it felt oddly comforting. And then he launched into the exact lecture that I didn't know I needed. Dad told me that life is a struggle. He told me that before and I thought I understood, but the weight that he put on the word hinted at a world of burdens that he was shouldering that I would never know. He said life doesn't just have obstacles, life is obstacles. Every day, every moment is a challenge. From getting out of bed and brushing your teeth and opening up the curtains, life is facing obstacles and making the decision to push past them by any means necessary. Dad said two of the most important things Henry Ford ever said were, the only real mistake is the one from which we learn nothing, and failure is simply the opportunity to begin again, this time more intelligently. And then there was yet another saying, whether you think you can or you think you can't, you're right. Dad gave my shoulder one more squeeze, he turned the radio back on, and then we kept driving to his warehouse parking lot. That day, as I wandered around the remains of all the failed businesses that we thrived off of, my mind raced. Dad was right. This bump in the road would not be a dead end for me. My rightful place at the top of the pyramid was waiting for me if I could summon the will and cunning to keep climbing. The dimming fire had been refueled. Matt was going to die, and a new king would be crowned. He was back in school in a few weeks, wheelchair-bound and lavished with praise and sympathy, so I decided to lean in to the lapdog role. I volunteered to be his assistant in and out of school. I pushed him to all his classes, rode the short bus home with him, even had to maneuver his chair into the handicap stall and take his dick out for him. It's okay, you can laugh, it's funny now. I hated it at the time, but it was necessary and I would do it again in a second. Remember that. Now, as far as I could tell, he suspected nothing. He didn't mention getting hammered that day, didn't mention the race. He just sheepishly kept thanking me over and over like a bum who just got a $20 bill. And when it was just the two of us, Matt wouldn't shut up about every little thing that was going through his head. Maybe the fall made him reflective or maybe he sensed his eminent demise, but it was like he suddenly had to share everything inside him with someone. Most of what Matt said was pure basic human bullshit. I'm worried I didn't do enough. I should have listened to my grandpa more. Do you think my mom and dad know how much I love them? Stupid shit like that. But one evening in his room, just when I started to fall into a trance of uh-huhs and nodding, Matt let slip the words that I'd been waiting to hear for weeks. Hey, can you keep a secret? Oh man, I started salivating. Are you kidding? Of course. And I left it at that. I just let the silence hang in the air so he could fill it. He goes, maybe this is dumb, but do you ever get the feeling that you're missing something or that you're holding yourself back, just fitting yourself into what other people want? I wasn't sure what he was getting at and I don't think he was either, but still I thought whatever it was, it wouldn't hurt to have it recorded. So he goes on, like Derek and Hunter, they're great guys. We've been best friends for years, but I don't know, man, I'm just over them now. They're kind of dumb. We talk about girls and last night's game and that's it. 
or their stupid sense of humor, all the farting in each other's faces and sack taps. I've had a lot of time to sit and think with my legs all busted up. I don't want to be stuck with people like them. Believe me, I get what you mean, I reassured him. They bug me too sometimes. The whole town feels a little beneath us. Don't worry, you can spill your guts to me anytime. And so he did. He enumerated all the dumb things his two closest buddies had done over all those years, how he was sometimes embarrassed to be around them, how he knew they'd never make it out of this hick town, and how once he got to college, he would never look back. And all of it I recorded on my phone as I listened in complete silence. That night, I called up Hunter first. I gave him the whole, Man, have you heard what Matt's been saying about you? He didn't believe what I told him right away, of course, so I played him some of the recording, the part where Matt talked about Hunter still being mentally and emotionally an eight-year-old. Hunter was stunned, and a part of me felt kind of sorry for him, but only for a second. I held my breath until he finally howled, That piece of shit! I told him that wasn't even the tip of it. That was just what I managed to record, and that I felt bad betraying Matt like this, but I thought they deserved to know. So Hunter told me to play it for Derek, so I called him up and I did, and then we all met up afterwards at a Wendy's parking lot for some burgers, liquor, and commiseration. Derek and Hunter were ready to kick Matt's ass, and Hunter was especially worked up, stomping around his truck and muttering swears and slurs to himself. And I just kept laying it on. I spouted so much bullshit about Matt thinking that Derek and Hunter were halfwits, that they'd be working for him someday if they were lucky, but that they'd probably end up like their deadbeat meth-head dads. I hammered away at how much Matt couldn't wait for graduation just so he could get the hell away from this town full of mutants and losers. That's when Hunter turned to me like he was my personal ventriloquist dummy and he spoke the words that I was waiting for him to say out loud. We gotta knock some respect into him. He can't talk about us like that. He needs a lesson, you know? I knew. Oh boy, I knew. And with the idea bubbling up organically at the suggestion of Matt's close friends, I was now free to set the plan in motion. All I needed now was a fall guy. Derek and Hunter were too close to me. I had to find somebody to go down for the murder who couldn't be connected to us. They say that luck is when preparation meets opportunity. I think that's true to an extent, but sometimes the universe just gives you exactly what you need. Maybe it's destiny, who knows. But the next week while I was working behind the counter of my dad's store, the last piece of the puzzle fell right into my lap in the form of this skinny, stinky-smelling classmate who wandered in looking for some sick blades. I recognized him instantly, and I immediately knew this was going to be my fall guy. It was Ray Klein, part of the vampire freak and Japanimation creep crowd, a real bottom-of-the-pyramid kind of guy, or even lower, like mud and mummy drippings under the bottom of the pyramid. We shared an AP bio class where everyone avoided partnering with or even sitting near him. Even in a room full of pickled horse fetuses and reused test tubes, Ray was still the worst smelling thing by far. He smelled like an abandoned dumpster, a mixture of cat piss and decay. I'm guessing it had something to do with having a horrible home life. I knew he lived in one of those trailer park shanty towns that sprouted up between the respectable neighborhoods in the area. They were like a fungus. Everyone at school hated Ray, and I assumed whatever parent or guardian he had at home likely felt the same. Anyway, he came into Dad's store in his usual uniform. 
black t-shirt with a Japanese cartoon character on it, wide leg pants covered in chains, hair gelled back with Elmer's glue, and long striped gloves that barely covered a bunch of scars. This is it, I thought to myself. This is the perfect patsy. So when he came up to the counter, I made sure to be extra attentive. Ray asked me if we had any cheap swords or cool knives or ninja stars, which of course we had a ton of. Mall sword stores were closing around the country by the hundreds, and we had what amounted to a small medieval armory scattered throughout the store. I told him I'd show him around and cut him a deal if I could. So we walked through a few aisles, and I could just see Ray's eyes running over every samurai sword and wavy bowie knife. He told me he already had a sword, a gift from one of his mom's boyfriends, and a pretty decent knife. So I told him, I can find you something more unique. I said, I know you're looking for something cheap, and lucky for you, we get in a lot of damaged boxes and partial sets. And I pull out this roughed up cardboard box from one of the shelves. Now the box had a picture on it of a set of modified brass knuckles with three long blades that extended out from between where the fingers slid in and there were four letters engraved on the knuckle position. On one set of the knuckles, the letter spelled out L-O-V-E, and on the other set, they spelled out H-A-T-E. I gave Ray a good look at the picture on the box, and he goes, Sick. I knew. I made the sale. But then I tell him, Look, Ray, unfortunately, we only have one hand from the set, but that means I can give it to you cheap. No worries. Whatever cash you got. Ray told me he only had 10 bucks with him, and I said, not a problem, meet me at the counter. Once I got to the counter, I quickly slipped out one of the bladed knuckles, the one that was stamped love, and I stashed it. And the other one I left in the box for Ray. I made sure to scan the box and hand him his copy of the receipt, the store copy of which I knew might one day be evidence. And as I handed him the shopping bag, I pointed to his head. Hey, Ray, I think you got something in your hair. Ray shook his head, and I had to stifle a gag seeing all the dandruff fall on the floor. I told him, man, sorry, this place gets full of all kinds of spiders and bugs. Come here, I just want to make sure you don't have a black widow hitchhiking in your hair. Now this was honestly the most difficult part of the whole thing, forcing my hand into his tangled, greasy hair and ruffling it up. But it was necessary, and like I said before, I'd do it again. Anyway, I managed to pull out a little clump of loose strands. Hmm, I told him, well, I don't see it now. Sorry, maybe it was the light. Anyway, thanks and come again. As soon as he left, I slipped those greasy strands into an envelope and put the next step in my plan in motion. I scheduled the rendezvous with everyone just a few days later. The plan was that I'd pick up Matt and meet Derek and Hunter down by the riverbank where they'd be waiting with liquor and cigars. Matt was in great spirits when I picked him up told me for the hundredth time how glad he was to have met me this year, that meeting someone else like him really gave him the courage and confidence to break out of the small town high school mentality. He said he was lucky to have me as a friend, and I told him that we make our own luck. When we got there, I unloaded him from the truck, got him in his wheelchair, and then grabbed my backpack. There was a small path cleared out from the gravel parking lot down to the side of the river, and as I pushed Matt forward, I stopped worrying about whether or not the branches along our path were hitting him. Once we got to the river, the only light came for the moon and its reflection on the water. Derek and Hunter were standing there, completely silent. Then Matt immediately noticed that something was off. So he goes, hey guys, where's the beer? 
He was trying to stay cool. That's when I shoved Matt out of his chair and into the mud. Derek and Hunter started circling him until I made the first move. A sharp kick to Matt's stunned face. And then everything just exploded. We stomped and stomped until he hardly looked human. Until his twitching completely stopped and it felt like we were kicking a beanbag chair. We finally stopped when we were too tired to go on. Then I leaned over Matt and I tried to push him over. He didn't make a sound. So I go, shit man, I think, I think he's dead. Those two meatheads were still standing there just breathing hard and heavy, looking terrified, and they started losing their shit. But I stopped it instantly. I had to be in control. This was the moment I took leadership. So I tell them, stop, stop. It's okay. What's done is done, okay? We have to take care of this. I can take care of this. They just stood there, the idiots. I asked them both if they told anyone else where they were going tonight, and they said no. So I said, okay, look, we were never here. We have no idea what Matt was doing tonight. We leave, clean up, and never speak of this again. They listened to me, and they left. Then I was alone with Matt. I took out some latex gloves, the one set of bladed knuckles I had, and the envelope with Ray's hair from my backpack. I slipped on the gloves and put my fingers through the rings of the knuckles and it fit perfectly. In a way, the claw felt more like my hand than my actual hand. That's when I heard him groan my name. But I didn't care. I pulled my fist back, took a breath, and exhaled. The blades slid into Matt's throat clean and smooth all the way down to the skin. I took my hand out from the knuckle rings and I watched as he twitched for a few moments before going completely still. Then I artfully sprinkled a few of Ray's hairs right by the weapon, right on Matt's neck, and I left. And that was it. Mission accomplished, finally. A hiker found Matt the next day, and within a week, Ray was dragged in by the police thanks to a tip that I called in about his recent purchase. With the hair at the scene and the police finding the matching set of brass knuckles to the one that was still stuck in Matt's throat, it was already an open-shut case. But like a cherry on top I never saw coming, after being interrogated for a few days, Ray actually confessed. I was in awe of myself. I still am, clearly. Sometimes I wonder what the cops might have done to get him to confess. Anyway, a month later, Ray hanged himself in his cell. Nice and tidy ending to the whole thing. Case closed, no need for a trial. Of course, from there, the rest of high school was smooth sailing. With Matt out of the way, the path was clear for me to dominate. Valedictorian, state football championship, prom king, class president, honor society, every accolade thrown at my feet. I was accepted on a full ride to Harvard and my future success was all but assumed. It's because I listened to my dad. I did what had to be done, and I was rightfully rewarded. So that's my story. That's how I took my rightful place at the top, how I didn't let anything get in my way. It wasn't the first time I took care of business or the last. Now look, I told all this to you so we all have something at stake, so you know I'm serious. Like I said, you're both final candidates. You both have promise. You both demonstrate a cunning and work ethic that far exceeds your peers. Someday, after I'm gone, of course, you could have it all. So the real question is this. Which one of you has what it takes? Which one has the stones to do what's necessary? We're about to find out right now. 
with your final test. Between you, there's a single sharp knife. Either one of you can take it, but only one of you is going to leave here alive with a brand new life at the top with me and the rest of my crew. Don't worry, it'll all get cleaned up. No police are going to come looking for you. Whoever has the right stuff will walk out alive and join the ranks of my executive team. Just like my dad taught me, kill or be killed. That's all there is to this world. Tonight's story was inspired by the tragic murder of a Montana high schooler and the suspicions that still linger long after her alleged killer was convicted. In 1979, 17-year-old Kim Neese was on the top of her world. She was casually beautiful, naturally personable, and her class valedictorian. Kim had a bright future ahead of her. But one summer morning after her family's truck was found abandoned along the Poplar River, police discovered the horrifying scene of Kim's life being cut short. Kim had been brutally beaten to death with blunt objects on the banks of the river where she and her friends often hung out. There was forensic evidence everywhere, with multiple sets of footprints around the truck, fingerprints inside it, and even a bloody handprint left on the door. Despite the abundant leads, suspects were in short supply. Barry Beach, who was also 17 at the time, was questioned by the police about the murder because he was Kim's neighbor and had previously dated her sister. But the police released Barry without ever filing charges. Then rumors started to circulate around town that it was personal jealousy that had led to Kim's death. A group of three or four of Kim's classmates who were never officially identified became the town's best guess for prime suspects. The different sets of footprints around the crime scene, the lack of any signs of sexual violence, and the strength it would require to move Kim from the truck to the riverbank all pointed towards a group of perpetrators that had it in for Kim. But four years later, a shocking break in the case when Brian Beach, who was now living in Louisiana, confessed to the murder after an unrelated arrest. Now, never mind the fact that Brian was interrogated by the police for two days straight, or the fact that Brian also confessed to three murders in Louisiana where his involvement was later proven impossible and the charges dismissed, his confession stuck. Brian Beach was quickly convicted for the murder of Kim Neese, even though the handprint and fingerprints in the truck did not match Brian's and no forensic evidence was produced to put him at that scene. Now, Brian attempted to appeal his trial over the course of decades and was even briefly released in 2011, but then the Montana Supreme Court ordered his conviction reinstated in 2013. 35 years after his imprisonment, Brian was finally granted clemency with his sentence commuted from 100 years to time served with an additional decade of parole. Brian Beach is now free, but the questions of who killed Kim Neese and why remain. Tonight's episode was written by Ian Wood. Nighty Night is executive produced by Rabia Chaudhry and Colin Thompson. It's produced by DJ Lou Bell. It's sound designed and edited by Anton Doty. Original music by Andrew Gerlicker. Nighty Night is a cast original podcast.